Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Kevin and Kate McAllister from the film Home Alone. And joining the discussion is producer Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. Glad to have you aboard every time that we do an episode with just the two of us. And this is a fun one, Home Alone. Uh, I hadn't revisited it, well, obviously since... I, like it was kind of on in the background last year with my kids, but I wasn't really paying attention. So I don't know when I actually last like sat down and watched it, but it's also one of those movies that's just always on at Christmas. So I like, I knew it so well I could write the summary without sitting down to rewatch it. Yeah. it, it I, Well, I mean, it's not a terribly complex summary depending on how detailed you want to get into it. Are you, are, are you blow by blow? No, I, the I'm, end? I'm going pretty light on the detail. <laughs> Didn't want to wince too much uh, while, while reading through. Yeah. Um, yeah, because fundamentally, like, it is fairly straightforward. Yeah, yeah there, there's kind of two plots. Uh, Kevin uh, fighting off the burglars and Kevin's mom working her way home. And that's about it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, a, few, a few subplots to give you some of the Christmas feels. Uh, but not not like I said, not, not the most complex movie that's ever been made. But boy, is this one a hit with young children. And turns out with me too. <laughs> like you just, I can't help but laugh with, with some of the stuff. They managed to strike just the right tone to not make it horrifying. Like it, it's, it really is striking that live action cartoon that they wanted to have. I think they, they really did hit that very well. Yeah, there's, there's definitely something about the tone in, in this. I mean, like, and it might be worth pointing out now that there's two classic Home Alone films and then anything else in the Home Alone iverse just doesn't have the same texture. Mm-hmm. You know, it just doesn't feel the same. It doesn't feel right. So I have um, not. And, and there's a number of reasons for it, I think. And we might I, get into some of those. I've not revisited Home Alone Lost in New York since I think that one I've only seen once, maybe twice ever. Does that one do you feel like match some of the tone of this first one? I, I do. I feel like I haven't watched it, but I have definitely like in the past 30 years, I have seen it on TV and been like, oh, well, this is the part where they're going into the house. So I'm going to watch them, you know, do all the hijinks and them getting beat up still holds up in the same way. This yeah. Was. So I remember I remember like good hijinks um, from that. But I, as far as like the overall story, I don't know as well. Um, I definitely like this one. It feels like core core Christmas movie to me. Um, but Home Alone 2 is not is not the same for me. And I think that that's probably just because of what copies we had. Right. And we were satisfied with the first one. Yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting to see because uh, recently it was announced that Disney Plus is looking at doing a, a remake for their streaming service that's going to star the boy from Jojo Rabbit um, as... I don't know if it'll still be Kevin McAllister, but as the boy who's going to fight off uh, the burglars. And famously home alone gets brought up in the list of movies that you could ruin with a cell phone. Like the invention of cell phone takes the mm-hmm. plot away. <laughs> um, so I don't know if they're going to update it or just like move it back to the nineties and pretend there's no way that they could get in touch with Kevin. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that sounds like fine casting, but I feel like the burglars are far more important. Um, Like as much as they're, they're not the primary characters, 
I feel like they are more critical to get the casting right for that, to have the right energy and tone to get that, like you said, live action cartoon mm-hmm. um, kind of feeling. Because if the burglars are too human, it cannot work. Yeah, you, you like, feel what, too much empathy and sympathy. Yeah, and 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 one of the things that like works for, and I mean we're getting into like deconstruction and and discussion already, mm-hmm. but like one of the things that works for, um, Harry and Marv and and um um Joe Pesci and and Daniel Stern is like they have a certain like skewed physicality, you know, like their their movements they're able to make them like just just wacky enough yeah. well, and even that it makes pairing. sense that they're surviving everything that they mm-hmm. seem like they're fluid enough to to take the hits and get back up because they just when they get up they just get back up yeah kind of even, thing and that's part of what makes it okay even the the visual pairing of the tall linky guy and the short squat guy like that feels like an old style cartoon you know mm-hmm. <laughs> these are um you know the the, the buddies that uh, are always going to be getting hit and, and attacking each other and, and it's fine though. Cause you know, that's just the way it is. Like the, I think visually they even managed to capture some of that aesthetic, but like you noted, maybe we should save some of this discussion before we really introduce it. Cause I don't think we've even said that home alone is a 1990 film written by John Hughes, directed by Chris Columbus. And it starred Macaulay Culkin as Kevin, Catherine O'Hara as Kate, Joe Pesci as Harry and Daniel Stern as Marv. And it tells the story of Kevin McAllister being left home alone while his family flies to Paris uh, and accidentally left home alone. And he's, does it say how old he is? Is he eight? I think he says he's eight years old. At least I think he's eight, eight or nine. Yeah. Like I would say max 10. Mm-hmm. I, I know he says I, I'm eight years old, but I'd be here by myself to the grocery lady at one point. Okay. Um, so, and then while his family is away and he's home alone, uh, the, the burglars, uh, Harry and Marv try to rob his house and he fights them off with, a variety of extremely painful and in the real world, deadly methods uh, that somehow, like we said, comes off as comical in the, with, with the toad that home alone has established. Now I actually have a lot of trivia about home alone in part because Netflix um, sometime in the last year released a four episode documentary series called the movies that made us. And one of the episodes was about home alone and it's only, it's less than an hour. I want to say it was like 50 minutes long, but they had, uh, like Chris Columbus, they had uh, Daniel Stern talking about it. They had the stunt guy. They had a bunch of the behind the scenes people that were involved with Home Alone. Um, not everyone, like Macaulay Culkin wasn't there and Catherine O'Hara wasn't there. Joe Pesci, you know, didn't make it <laughs> to, to the documentary film. But they had a lot of talking heads going through the process of making it. And it was very quick. Uh, the, the editing of the documentary made it like really compelling to watch. Just It's the style where they do like lots of quick cuts and animations that are, um, you know, keeping you interested. And there's so much behind the scenes of this that I had no idea about uh, until I, I watched that episode. So if you're a fan of Home Alone, I would recommend uh, that you go look up on Netflix, uh, the movies that made us, uh, the episode about Home Alone. Um, so a lot of this trivia is coming from there. Uh, some of the other trivia is just stuff I pulled from uh, doing some research online. Uh, but Home Alone was initially released on November 16th, 1990 to mixed to negative reviews. For example, Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs down and it had a D score in the Entertainment Weekly Review. Did you know it was poorly reviewed, Andrew? I feel like I did. Yeah. Um, like I, it, it was one of the I mean, this was a big deal for movies in the 80s and 90s. They would come out and have, you know, medium to poor reviews. And then somehow they would just become so fundamental to something 
about the, life. You kind of forget. Now, at this point, the Rotten Tomatoes score is 65%, but I think Rotten Tomatoes does, like, allow updates of, like, retrospective reviews. So that could include, like, reviews from the last five years from websites and things like that. So I don't think that's all culled just from the 1990 uh, reviews from newspapers, which I think would have been less than 65% from the, at least from the tone of everything that I saw when I was looking it up online. Um, however, despite critics, audiences, it turns out, loved it. It was number one at the box office. I don't know. Are you looking at the notes, Andrew? Do you see how long I'm it not. was number one? Okay. Do you, do you know, do you want to guess how long it was number one at the box office? Premiered November 16th, 1990. I mean, it's gotta, I would assume that that's going to carry it into Christmas, so I'm going to say more than four weeks, maybe like six or seven or eight weeks. It was number one for 12 straight weeks. So from number, November 16th Whoa. through February 1st, it was the number one movie in America every weekend. It stayed in the top 10 through April 26th, 1991. But wait for it. It popped back into the top 10 of all movies at the box office it, June 2nd and then again June 16th. So it was one of the top films in America <laughs> no in world. June 1991. Six months after release. Yes. Which I know movies were in theaters longer uh, in, in the 80s and 90s than they are now. But even then, that feels like a really long time to be popping back up into the top 10 at the box office. Yeah, that seems that seems extraordinary. So it ended up making $285 million at the domestic box office. And that made it the top grossing film released in 1990. And So this it, was the number one movie of 1990? Yes. It's global uh, box for, office. For box office. Yeah, it's it's global box office settled in at four hundred seventy six million, and I I don't know exactly when, but I know for a good run, it was one of the top ten movies of all time at the box office. I did not know that. Yeah, uh, do you know what its budget was? It's going to be something really small, like like sixty million. Eighteen million dollars. Oh, million significantly dollar less. <laughs> yes, maybe maybe eighteen million is the sixty million of the nineties. So about that budget, this is some stuff I learned watching the films that made us. Uh, Home Alone was set up at Warner Brothers. I think John Hughes had a uh, had made a few of his films with Warner Brothers, and they had bought his script uh, with the understanding that he wasn't going to direct it. It was going to be Chris Columbus directing it. And they bought it and offered a $10 million budget, uh, and they began to do all the construction on the set and work through everything that you do uh, before you start filming. And they finally they submitted a final budget of $14.7 million to Warner Brothers. And Warner said, get it down to $13.5 million or we're shutting down the production. And like John Hughes and Chris Columbus are like, we're only a million apart in Hollywood money. That's really not that much. Are they really going to be this this much? Let's just stick with it. Uh, but <laughs> um, Warner Brothers did send someone to shut down the entire production because they wouldn't go down to $13.5 million. And uh, illegally, according to Hollywood contracts, John Hughes had actually arranged for a script of the film to be accidentally dropped where a Fox executive would pick it up (laughs) (laughs) in preparation for knowing that Warner wasn't happy with uh, what was going already. So he had already done that. Um, And so Warner sent an exec to Chicago where they were setting up the filming. And the Warner exec kind of like went from room to room in the production office and said, shut it all down, you're closed. And then someone else, uh, another producer followed right behind and said, keep going being picked up by fox this <laughs> is just right there yeah like the story in the the films of made is, is like literally he'd wait for the warner exec to leave the room and he'd walk in and say never mind just keep going we're gonna be picked up by fox tomorrow <laughs> um, and the story is like that, that yeah they they like dropped the script whoops because they weren't allowed to share the script 
Uh, and and then Fox did pick it up, and they said you can have your fourteen point seven million dollar budget. It did balloon up to eighteen million, and that is how Warner Brothers lost what for a long time was one of the top ten film movies in history, top ten box office films in history, and uh, it ended up at Fox. Um, so I said they were filming in Chicago. They actually were using an abandoned high school in Chicago that John Hughes had used for a bunch of his teen films in the uh, in the eighties. Um, you know his yeah his, the, the the John Hughes films yeah, yeah the Brat Pack like like when you think of John Hughes films you don't think of Home Alone you think of the Brat Pack films right and uh, a lot of those are high school films and they used like Ferris Bueller's Day Off and um, the Breakfast Club I think used the, this same abandoned. Uh, high school uh, as it set. So what they did is uh, they just turned the auditorium into uh, basically the interior of the house. And the high school actually did have an, you know, an emptied out swimming pool. And that's where they went and filmed the basement that Kevin has to run through. That's flooding <laughs> because they're like, well, where, where are we going to do this? Well, there's a pool. Let's go use that. Uh, so, so they built almost the entire, Almost everything you see in the film, other than the exterior shots, was done in the high school. Um, the house that they use as the exterior for the the Home Alone house, I think they said the only thing they did is they filmed a few of like the door opening and seeing the outside shots from there. I was, was going to say, it's like I feel like there's a, a number of good transitions from like the outside to the foyer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the the foyer was used for a few things on quick pug ups. Notably, they knew that the scene when Catherine O'Hara returns, Kevin's mom returns on Christmas morning, they wanted it to be snow. And they said our fake snow is not good enough. We needed to look like real snow. And they were filming in February in Chicago. And it just wasn't snowing. But they said, basically, the first day that snows forecast, we're shutting down whatever we're doing. And we're going to the house and we're filming the Christmas morning scene. And that's what they did. They got it within a few days of actually starting. They did have a snowy day and they, they just, you know, moved everyone to that house and just spent the day getting those shots. Uh, and then went back to the high school after that. Um, <clears throat> let's see uh, some other trivia from this. Uh, the role of Harry, the burglar was first offered to Al Pacino who turned it down. Then John Lovitz who passed on it. And then it landed with Joe Pesci. I can't imagine Al Pacino in that role. Um, no, that one that one doesn't work. At least '80s Al Pacino, like he he's done some silly films in, in the last decade. Well, like, like but '80s Al Pacino, <laughs> I don't know yeah. how how that would have been uh, at all. Now, now John Lovitz, I see it. He's making he too much of a cartoon. Exactly. Uh, he like he has some of the similar physicality. Like him standing next to Daniel Stern wouldn't look like height wise or anything all that different. I think from what Joe Pesci brings, but I don't know that his voice would have had. Uh, some of the underlying threat that it makes, uh, I, again, like talking about the tone, makes Kevin's actions acceptable. Like, you need to know that these really are bad guys, and I don't know that you ever believe Dan, John Lovitz is really a bad guy. <laughs> yeah, as, as much as, I don't know, like, this, it's really weird. Like, my brain's trying to, like, explain it, but it's like, when you see John Lovitz, it's because you're watching a comedy, and John Lovitz knows he's in a comedy. But when you see Joe Pesci, and he's in a comedy. It's like he doesn't know he's in a comedy. <laughs> so in the uh, in that documentary, it talks about working with Joe Pesci, and he he said like he he took the role, but he, he what he struggled with was the dialogue because he said I'm used to every script I read inserting multiple expletives into every line that my character is going to say, but because this was supposed to be a DVD <laughs> film, I can't do that. And talking about the cartoon, one thing he ended up doing is he kind of used the dastardly and muttly like rock a language that that Muttley <laughs> uses uh to to replace all the swearing that he really wanted to be saying 
Um, but yeah, he, he brings like a certain amount of gravity to it where it's like, okay, this guy is real ish, but, but he's, he's just in the wrong place. And deserves to be punished. And I don't know that you'd feel John Lovitz deserves to be punished as much as you do with Joe Pesci or, or, or you don't feel the pain as much with John Lovitz because you know, he's in on it. Right. Um, Daniel Stern, the other burglar, he accepted the role of Harry and, and this was in the early days, but he was told that the shoot was going to extend from six to eight weeks. And he said, does that mean I get a raise because I'm going to be working longer? And they said, no. And he walked uh, away and said, no. And another actor was cast, but they, no one felt he, this other actor had the right chemistry with Joe Pesci. And so when Fox picked it up, they went back and said one more time, like, do you want it? And he's like, yes, I, I, I've been regretting walking away since I did. <laughs> so I, I, I do want to come back. Do you, uh-huh. do you know who the other actor was? It was, I, I cannot remember. I remember it was another actor named Daniel because they like did the twist in the documentary. Like Daniel was signed to play Harry, but it wasn't Daniel Stern. I, I just can't remember the last name of who hmm. it was. It wasn't a big actor that I really had recognized. Okay. I, I think it was one of those like, um, you know, in everything all stars. <laughs> like, oh, that guy <laughs> kind of actor where you, you, you recognize him, but you can't really place from where. Right. Um, John Candy has a fun, you know, role in the film and, um, he had worked with John Hughes on uncle buck a little bit before home alone. And so as a favor, uh, and to help keep the budget down because there were budget issues, he said he would work for scale, which is about $500, but he would only give them one day, uh, which means that the pizza delivery guy made the same money that John Candy made <laughs> in, in filming home alone. Uh, but he said, you can have me for one day. And it said they filmed with John Candy for 23 straight hours. That's so, a lot. Yes. Uh, we, we get you for a day. Uh, we're really going to use that. I don't think he knew what he was setting up for when he made that offer that he filled with them for one day. And uh, as a favor, though, it did say that John Hughes was very protective of the script and he was not letting actors improvise. But uh, because John Candy was doing such a big favor, he was allowed to improvise. And I think you feel a little of that John Candy rhythm in some of uh, his, his scenes like the polka polka or the story about the funeral home. I feel like some of that must have been improvised. Yeah. yeah, you get a certain energy from him where you're like, where's this going? <laughs> but it's, but it's great. And it still works. <laughs> yes. We left him at the funeral home. He started talking a couple years later. He was fine. <laughs> um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, the only other trivia that I wanted to share is this film has a really fantastic score from John Williams. I mean, it's the John oh, Williams score, you know, it's, it's going to be good. It's a really good score, <laughs> but it also like, I think John Williams does an excellent job of like capturing Christmas, but also hitting the beats of the film like the suspense but with christmas you know you kind of feel all of that and uh so so they had filmed enough of the like they had done their all their filming and they were in the editing phase and um they had another composer who was signed to do the film who had done some temp music for them to have while editing and then he was going to you know do the final score and they had all the visuals and everything and they're like this this music isn't quite matching the tone what can we do? And then that other composer said, I have another job. I actually am not going to be able to finish this. And they're like, great. <laughs> that, that's, that's fine. <laughs> Saved us from an awkward conversation. And then it's a Christopher Columbus got a cut of the film through Steven Spielberg to John Williams, just because <laughs> c- he said, he's like, what if John Williams scored this? And everyone else was like, he, he is not going to score this film. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's, it's John Williams. Yeah, this is ridiculous. But Christopher, Christopher Columbus knew Steven Spielberg. I don't know from where, but he got through him a cut of the film to John Williams. And John Williams was like, I love it. Can I please score this? And that's how John <laughs> Williams ended up scoring Home Alone. Um, and yeah, so, so many of these pieces feel so odd, but it's I think it's one of those where like 
every Hollywood production, I think, has some of these troubled moments that we get from Home Alone. It's just not every Hollywood production then ends up still like working through becoming something kind of magical and timeless, which Home Alone has done. Uh, you know, every every film has people who think they're trying, they're doing their best to make something great, and sometimes it all comes together, and other times like there's just too many things that aren't aren't quite working, uh, and, and it doesn't blend properly and home alone somehow despite all these issues of changing production houses changing actors uh changing uh composers it does come together into something that's pretty special yeah yeah it it, it's hard to like define like what makes it work and when you hear this story it's like oh gosh like there's so many things that could have made it not work oh yeah definitely and so it's pretty amazing and i'm not trying to say like this is you know, Citizen Kane or, you know, whatever you want to put in your, in your Mount Rushmore of Hollywood films. I don't think anyone's going to have Home Alone in that, uh, but it's also been a really solid performer for 30 years now. And I don't think it's going anywhere. Uh, you know, it, it's just, it's one of those consistent films that if it's on, you can sit down and, and get a good belly laugh out of it. Yeah. All right, uh, before I go into my spoilery summary, we want to thank you for downloading this episode and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are monthly shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming lately and that we haven't yet covered as a full episode of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And on that note, I think there's still a few patrons at $5 that I have sent multiple messages through Patreon, which is the only way I have to reach out that I have not heard back of from asking or uh, selecting a topic for us to discuss. Do reach out still. If you're at a $5 level, we will absolutely give you the chance to pick a topic. Yes, definitely. Okay. So now the full summary, which I did, you know, the nice summary tri- uh, trick of streamlining the plots a little and like removing some of the tangle intertangling. So I'm not going to be jumping from scene to scene and I'm not going to give like full rundown of everything that Kevin McAllister does to these burglars. Just know it looks extremely painful, but is also laugh out loud funny. So we begin with the extended McAllister family planning to fly to France for their Christmas vacation. Kevin, the youngest child, feels picked on and is in fact picked on by his siblings and cousins. After one particularly bad blow up though, his mom sends him to sleep on the extra bed in the attic. That night, a power outage takes out all of the alarm clocks in the house and the families wake up and scramble madly to make their flights. And in the chaos, Kevin is forgotten. And I think they do just enough work to make it plausible that uh, that, that Kevin was forgotten. Where they like they are doing head counts, but there's a neighbor kid who gets in the mix that the, that cousin doesn't realize is... is um, is not Kevin, you know, that sort of thing where, um, you know, the family doesn't look as terribly awful and irresponsible as it would be <laughs> to leave a child behind on this kind of trip. Um, Kevin wakes up and is at first delighted to find himself home alone after his blow up the night before he'd even wished that he'd wake up and live alone. But soon his fears of the creepy old man in the neighborhood and a pair of burglars who are called the wet bandits make it not as much fun and games as it seemed initially. Mid-flight over the Atlantic, Kevin's mom, Kate, realizes that she left Kevin home. As soon as they land, they try contacting police in Chicago to check on Kevin and try to book flights home, but there's nothing for the next few days. Kate is able to get one flight to Dallas, but hopes to find a way to then make it to Chicago once she is in America again. She gets a flight to Scranton, Pennsylvania, and while having a meltdown at a ticket gate to try and get a flight to Chicago, she is overheard by Gus Polinski, who offers to let her ride with his polka band to Chicago, and she gratefully accepts this offer. Uh, uh, accepts this offer. Uh, Kevin 
Uh, he overhears the wet bandits, Harry and Marv, making plans to rob his house on Christmas Eve. And so he makes plans to defend it. Uh, but first he goes to church to hear Christmas music. And he sees the creepy old man from his neighborhood. Old man Marley sits next to Kevin and turns out to actually be very nice. He says he came to hear his granddaughter practice with the choir uh, because of a fight with his sons years ago. He is estranged from his son's family. Kevin tells him that he should rec reconcile, especially at Christmas. Kevin makes sure his booby traps are good to go. And that night, Harry and Marv try to break in. I'm not going to describe in detail all of these pain, the pain that these two men suffer, but it is a phenomenal amount of damage from nails, a blowtorch, and iron, shards of glass, crowbars, and many other cartoon-esque traps. They finally do catch Kevin and plan to punish him, and just then old man Marley knocks them out with a snow shovel and rescues Kevin. Christmas morning, Kevin wakes up, hoping his family is back, but the house is empty. Uh, however, his mom is dropped off by the polka band, and she rushes, rushes into the house. Kevin goes to give her a hug just as the rest of the family comes in. They took the flights that were a few days later, and they got back almost at the same time as Kate. Kevin looks out the window, and he sees old man Marley welcoming his son and his son's family home for Christmas. The end. It's kind of short. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's not a whole lot. So much of it is, like, that final act is just painful uh, stunt after painful stunt. Oh, and I do want to say, they uh, in that documentary, they talked about the stunts, and they're like, this is... 1990 this is like pre-cgi all these stunts were done practically you know yeah and, something and, is practically occurring and they're like on cement and they talk to the stuntman he's like i don't mind pain i kind of liked it so i would get as high uh on every fall as i could throw my body and try and land land uh, in as painful looking away as possible just for the cameras <laughs> and and like they come back to him like a little bit later talking about it. he's like i just liked it and that's it. That's his whole story. As a stuntman, he liked throwing his body down the cement stairs, throwing himself backwards onto the floor from the the Hot Wheel cars. He was good. Um, and they said that even uh, today in stunt circles, um, a Home Alone fall is when you throw yourself up as high as you can before you land. <laughs> that's what they call it. You, you got to get some air on that. Yep. Well, and like, and in some cases, it's really amazingly coordinated like the the hot wheels one because both both characters walk into the same space and they both fall yeah and uh so, so there's lots of timing and um in terms of again like the, that crew I'll, this was not a big production so i think it was the cinematographer and the editor this was kind of their first time being the main people like they had worked on films before but never as the cinematographer and the editor and they talked about things like watching cartoons to try and get the angle camera angles they were going to want to have and the timing uh of the kind of cartoon falls that they were looking for and um and they, they also said they, they had one small camera that they would set up for a wide angle for every stunt because they knew this was a painful thing they were asking the stuntmen to do and they didn't want to make them have to ask to do it twice. And they said very often yeah. it was that wide shot was actually the better angle than the one that they planned. And it was kind of serendipitous that just almost because of their lack of confidence that they were setting up <laughs> an extra camera, they got some of the best angles uh, that they were able to use in editing. And um, I think there should also be some credit to the sound design um for for these hits and everything mm -hmm. oh oh definitely and one thing that i do have to say though so this film came out in 1990 i was eight years old um i remember as a kid 
kind of like just like okay that's that's fun i like it when he jumps on the bed and is eating popcorn but let's get to the the third act <laughs> you know and and like the scene in, in the church it was kind of like you know this is just biding time to the good stuff and now as a little it's like if it didn't have the like the scene at the church with old man marley and the resolution with marley's family that kevin mm-hmm. sees through the window like the film has no heart and it, it could be kind of a fun cartoon but i think it wouldn't be the Christmas classic that has become like, you really do need those moments of heart and um, human emotion that are granted from what, when I was a kid, I was kind of like just trying to get through to get to the funny part. Yeah. There's, there's just the right balance of it. And I think it would, and like you said, like if it didn't have the, the scene with the church, it doesn't work. Even if you've still got everything with him and his mom and, and like her trying to get back home, that's like somehow that's not quite enough. Mm-hmm. And somehow having this this like C or D storyline come in yeah. is is exactly what it needs, which is not something that I would say most movies are going to benefit from is having it's like, well, let's make sure we've got these key scenes for the D, D storyline. Yes. Um, and, and I'm wondering if like some of those scenes were added because the film actually does, I think, a pretty good job of like setting up Kevin's access to everything that gets used as the booby traps and yeah. setting up um the space and the moments that are going to come into play in the final act. So I'm wondering if like this story act or storyline about the scary old man on the street. I think that part of it is about Kevin maturing and understanding the world a little better than he did as it, as just the eight year old kid who was scared of this old man. But I think some of it is also was probably included to set up that this eight year old literally would probably die if he was in a real fight with two grown men. And so the old man is kind of a deus ex machina at the end to, to finally give the resolution that, uh, feels earned of of you know the the, the two burglars being taken out by another adult and so well okay we can't just have him show up so we got to have this moment that gives a beat uh, yes. and then maybe fleshing that out you end up with kind of you know one of the more heartfelt moments of the, of of the film yeah and I think the the heartfelt moment is what makes it actually feel earned it's like well Kevin actually did earn this by like going and facing his fear and talking to the guy and that's paying off. Right. Like it's, it's resolving. It's not just deus ex machina. It is his actions earlier in the film are generating almost like a karmic goodwill that is going to save him in the end. And if he didn't do that, it feels like this wouldn't have occurred. Yeah. I, I, I like that. Uh, and I think you're, you're spot on with that. Um, I also want to say like, they have it, like, it's not just the, the moments with um, the old man in the church. Like, they also, like, they have, like, an E and an F, like, little moment. Like, there's a moment where he shoplifts a toothbrush, mm-hmm. and he has his interaction at the grocery store buying groceries, and he has his interaction with Santa. And, like, yeah. these little moments just help. I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know if it's creating the world or, like, just giving us a sense of who Kevin is in a way that if those weren't there, I think the the tone and balance would be off, right? Like having that two minute scene with him in the grocery store actually makes a difference. Yeah. <laughs> in I the will end. say watching this in 2020, when I'm a little more aware of issues of race and gender and representation, I was a little like, I was just kind of thinking this is a very white film. Like all those little minor uh, characters, like, and, and all the background characters in the store. And when he's walking through the streets, like it's always just white people. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of an awfully role. white Chicago. <laughs> yes. There's not a speaking role for a character of color, which I would imagine the Disney remake in 20, if that comes next year, I don't know if it's next year or two years that they're planning on getting it out with, you know, all the, the hiccups that productions are experiencing uh, in the age of a pandemic. I, I would imagine that there'll be a, a little more representation of characters of color. Yeah. I <laughs> think that, that would definitely be fair. Um, 
but yeah, yeah, those those extra background scenes, you know, show Kevin's development and and like when he goes to see Santa, he's like, I just want my family back. It's like that's actually like him, you know, demonstrating his vulnerability and everything, even as he is demonstrating his capacity to take care of himself. Mm-hmm. He, he has, you know, he's the maturity to have vulnerability and yeah. capability. But he's also still an eight year old who like is kind of believing he wished his family away in some way. <laughs> like he hasn't worked through yeah. the reality of what's going on. Uh, and so, so I think there's a good mix there of him maturing, but he's still also a child. Uh, you know, he's, he's okay. Everything that he sets up, like there's improbability about him using the blowtorch properly and, you know, setting up these things. <laughs> yeah. And also perhaps the greatest improbable moment of this entire film that is filled with improbable moments is that Kevin cleaned up his entire house after Christmas Eve, when he took out the bar, uh, the burglars, because when his family comes in, it is pristine. <laughs> there's not a hot yeah. wheel. There's not the broken shards of glass. There's no feathers in the glue that he had set up. Uh, the tar, see, I, I don't know that we see the basement, but I am assuming, so, like, from how much he cleaned everything else, he somehow cleaned tar off of the steps to the basement. <laughs> um, and, and that is, you know, maybe where, uh, if you think about it at all, the, okay, I can't suspend my disbelief this much <laughs> with an eight-year-old. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, I think the like the the encapsulation in this film of that um, like maturity but still juvenile um, naivety is when he sets up his nice Christmas Eve dinner of a microwave mac and cheese, and he's got the candles lit, and he says he says grace over his his mac and cheese dinner, and please bless the people who sold it on sale. <laughs> yes. um, and it's like okay, this is a kid, but he is. He is he is imitating maturity in a certain degree. Yeah, and I think we do see some earned moments that feel appropriate for that age, so like overcoming his fear of the basement, right? Where there's the scary furnace mm-hmm. uh, that has freaked him out always, but he's got to go do some laundry, so he's going to go down there, and the furnace starts to make the scary sounds, and he turns and and I think he says "shut up, furnace" or whatever he says, and and it's no longer scary to him. Uh, like I, I I think that's appropriate level of growth for this character and i think opening up with old man uh was it old man marley was that the name of the character i, yeah, don't, I don't know if it is i think that's what you said in the in i don't the summary, think i knew but i don't know if that's correct name. i think i saw mcgregor a, what old man mcgregor uh let's see uh oh now i'm gonna be sad if i was wrong uh <laughs> i think i saw it as uh, it's like the cast list was mm-hmm. uh yeah in the cast list he's listed as old man marley oh okay yeah um and uh okay i'm just googling it i see like there's an article about how old man marley is the worst character in home alone i there's all sorts of takes about this film uh i, I think i'm comfortable saying buzz is the worst character buzz <laughs> <Not>. <laughs> he, he is the worst um so, so i guess there's all uh, all sorts of takes about uh, home alone that's what happens when a movie's been in uh pop culture for 30 years mm-hmm. uh, i mean i mean uncle frank's pretty bad Oh yeah, he is. Uh, I, I would imagine this complaint is that they feel like he is uh he's a Deus Ex Machina. It's from Vice.com. Uh, that's, yeah. I'm going to click through and just see. I, I think they're talking about it probably um, functioning in the film. And we've kind of said that we feel like it's actually a little bit earned what happens. Yeah. And actually the fact that we like can think through it and have all these different takes is definitely like points to the credit of this movie. And something that as a critic watching this, you're not going to consider it like, okay, but does it generate conversation? Like you, a critic doesn't um, account for the post film conversation of people saying, man, like this character is terrible. This character was really great. Actually. I liked this character, you know, like that conversation 
is is one of the reasons that you can rewatch this because you can say, oh, I forgot all about how terrible Frank was and that he's telling his wife to steal the salt and pepper shakers from the airline. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I uh, this this uh, article on Vice.com is from someone who truly hates Home Alone uh, and <laughs> believes it is one of the worst films that is ever made. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but they say they can't they can't escape it. Uh, they describe it as. Uh, a mean-spirited and outlandish tale of a family who hates their child just enough to forget to take him on vacation, and a child that spends time in solitude and increasingly panics without bothering to directly contact authorities until the end of the film. It's a terrible movie for terrible people. <laughs> <laughs> and for this person, it's uh, Larry Fitzmaurice. Um, uh, uh, Old Man Marley is the worst part of the entire film. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think I agree. Yeah, and well, and I, I understand complaints about the mean-spiritedness of it, uh, and I get it, but I, I think you have to be, like I said, the film has to strike just the right tone for it to work, and for me it does, but I understand why it would not for other people, and I don't think there's anything wrong with someone saying it's just, it, it, like, I, I feel too much for them. Or, I think also, like, as you age, like, I feel so much more sympathy and uh, and position myself with uh, Kevin's mom than I did as a kid. As a kid, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, look at him jumping on the bed. That's the best. Uh, he's eating ice cream for breakfast. Uh, but now it's like this. Would but be then the if most, you have, if you have a child. Yeah, it's like, the most okay. terrifying like, experience. <laughs> Kestra and I um, were watching it together. And when they first get to the French airport and they're making the decision about what's going to happen, like we looked at each other and said, Okay, so like which one of us stays at the airport and which one of us is going to the apartment and waiting for the Friday flight? Mm -hmm. Because because that's the mentality you have as a parent. It's like, okay, but like you got to get back to the kid. Yeah, yeah. One of you is getting back, you know, and it's going to try and find, you know, move heaven and earth to, to make that happen. But also the again, like they do just enough work to set up the premise. Like this is too big a group for us all to be able to actually move heaven and earth. <laughs> so one of us has to deal with our other, I can't remember how many are actually our Kevin siblings and how many. Are I think that, I think he's got four siblings. Kester and I talked about it and we were like trying to figure out all the kids that they have yeah. in this, in this event. And it's like, okay, so there's, there's uncle Frank and his wife and their kids. And then there's the family in Paris. And for some reason, like three of their kids are in Chicago and we I never actually I... see the, those parents, I don't think. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think there's either three or four siblings that are that are Kevin's siblings. There's Buzz and the blonde sister that calls him uh incompetent. Yeah. I think a brunette sister, and I think um the I, I think that's his other brother is the one Buzz is talking to about the spider at the right. beginning. I think, or yeah, I, I can't tell that one's a brother or cousin, but yeah, it, it's hard, hard to keep track. So you understand why the family, like the parents do actually have to split up uh, the, yeah. the plan here and um, explore both options, which end up working about just as well, equally you know, between the two of them. Um, but yeah, like my mindset, I became much more invested than I expected in uh, the performance of, um, uh, Catherine O'Hara as Kate, like her panic, like, and like when she takes the cell phone and, and like when she gives her monologue in the airport, like she's actually putting a fair amount of invest emotional investment into this performance that lands mm -hmm. both in terms of not believing this is the worst mom in the universe, even though she says of herself that, <laughs> you know, a few times in the film, uh, but uh, you know, all the angst and concern and terror that she must be feeling. And it's, I, I think, her 
like B plot of trying to get home became more is more interesting to me as an adult than than it was as a child certainly and i think this is one of those ways that you can consume the same media at different points in your life and it will have a different effect on you yeah and 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 credit to the filmmakers for having different stories that do resonate with different age groups and different different brackets right that's one of the important things that films sometimes neglect is Mm -hmm. can we hit the different quadrants yeah like i i remember after home alone there was a wave of films fairly similar like and for some reason i remember one was called like blank check that was a kid who got a blank check from a bad person and uh signed it for lots of money and bought ridiculous things and then the bad people tried to get it i must have my parents our parents must have rented for me once but i think it was basically the same film as, as home alone in a lot of ways but i would guess if i went and saw it there'd be like no hook at all for for adults uh it was just kids and that's one reason why you know it hasn't become a family classic that people have watched for decades you know it just kind of came and went uh, yeah yeah you can miss that balance really really easily mm-hmm. um let's see so we've talked some about kate we've talked some about kevin i will say like watching this with my six-year-old today in preparation for the podcast like the first sequence when he realizes he's home alone and i was like trying to track like how long is this like i, I guess it's basically one day because it is a long flight from chicago to paris uh that, yeah, I think, like I think still, that would be like 14 or 16 hours. Because yeah, they're, they're still intercutting with the family on the plane for a lot of this first day, which includes him uh, running around the house, jumping on the bed, eating popcorn, eating ice cream for breakfast and watching movies he's not supposed to, uh, sledding out of the house. Like all of that is in the first day. And uh, like particularly like the the jumping on the bed had my six-year-old just cracking up. Like he's just eating while jumping on the bed. <laughs> like the transgressive aspect of that <laughs> was so delightful to him. Um, and, and so I, I think you do get some of that, um, immaturity there at the top, uh, and that's going to transform with that character. So there's a little arc there throughout the film for Kevin's transformation. I don't think we get any real transformation from, uh, from Kate. It's more just like the resolution of her panic is, is, you know, we get the emotional release, but I don't know that she's a different, going to be a different parent. I mean, she won't forget her child again, except for in a sequel. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> I know it's a different premise for how it happens, but, but, you know, like, I don't think she's a different person as much as Kevin's a different person at the end of the film. Yeah. I think that's, that's definitely um, like, like Kevin's journey is the journey. Right. Um, and, and then the other characters who like the only other real agentive characters that we get in the film are the, are the burglars who want to go steal. So we get Harry and Marv who are one of the most absurd comedic duos of the last 30 years of film, I think. <laughs> I'm comfortable saying that. Um, there's just something about, I, I think Joe Pesci, it, it, something about his voice is so memorable in the role, but uh, Daniel Stern's physicality just cracks me up so much uh, in, in how he carries himself. And also like their little petty arguing as a pair is is delightful to me. The 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 arguing and like the fact that, that um, Marv is just like, doing all these things and Harry thinks he's an idiot and they just stick together anyway. Like, <laughs> like that kind of energy does something for it, for their, their coupling. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like the little things like, uh, we're going to come back and rob the place tonight. And, and you know, Marv's like, yeah, cause kids are scared of the dark. And Harry just rolls his eyes and he's like, you're scared <laughs> of the dark too. You know it. I'm not. He sticks the snow globes on the dashboard with a piece of gum. Uh-huh. And he's like, what? Like, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah, how do um, these two meet each other and how are they still a pair of burglars working together? 
Yes. Um, yeah, because like clearly Harry is the brains of the operation. Um, in as much as there are brains of this operation. Um, and Marv is just like swiping his crowbar across bookshelves into a sack. <laughs> breaking everything that he's supposed to be stealing. <laughs> yeah, like super loudly breaking everything. Um, and so you just like, it's the weird dichotomy mm-hmm. um, of the two of them. I think one thing that does work about it, uh, both in terms of adding some tension to the relationship, but also um, helping the viewers to like know what's going on. They, they both respect Harry as the smart one, and, but the viewers know they are both dumb, <laughs> right? Yes. I, I think that's key, key, key to this, is that both Harry, Harry definitely thinks he's smarter than Marv, and Marv knows Harry's the brains of this operation entirely. And, uh, you know, when he, when he's pushing back, it's because he's been picked on, not because he thinks he should be the leader at all. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. He, he doesn't have any ego about it. There's no, there's no competition in that. It's just like, sometimes he gets frustrated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they do enough work to show like a certain amount of savvy from Harry, like showing enough smarts that it's satisfying to have him be outsmarted. Right. It doesn't feel like Kevin's punching down um, against them because he um, he sneaks in as the cop and like cases the joint and um, and those kinds of things. Like he has a certain amount of planning and, you know, sneaking around and trying to, to scare Kevin and it works. And he and makes so a he makes a schedule like he like he, it's the moment where like yeah. he knows exactly when all the lights are going to turn on in the street and exactly when each family is leaving and you know he's walking Marv through this Harry's the one that's planned this and has laid it out and we are shown he's right about everything except for Kevin being left behind. Yeah, and so he is he is smart enough and and he has enough direct interactions with Kevin that it becomes satisfying for Kevin to get back at them right like Kevin sees the the gold tooth and he's like wait a second that's the cop. You know, and, and so you see those gears turning in Kevin's head. And so it actually has like a certain amount of like mind versus mind um, competition. You know, it's not just like, oh, these guys are going to sneak in and I'm just putting a bunch of traps in. Like you have a, a challenge between them. And um, I, I think that also works entirely for what we we're saying about we're, we're seeing Kevin mature a bit, but he's still, you know, basically an eight year old. But the person that he's going up against is barely above an eight-year-old, it seems. <laughs> with Marv, that's completely level. Uh, and he's maybe punching up just a little bit with Harry. Yeah. Um, and, and and I think I think one of the actually, like, charming things about there is there's a back and forth, right? Like, they come to the house multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a little bit of back and forth. Like, he has to trick them with the, with the, the tape and the gunfire. Um, and he has to trick them with all of the stuff in the house. And so having them show up, it's not just building up to the third act. It is like, here is interaction. Yeah. The, the fake Christmas party. Cause he knows they think that, you know, that they're going to try again. So he, he makes the house look like a giant Christmas party is going on. Uh, but that only works for the night to like the, the two burglars are work out what, what happened pretty quickly the next day. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, and then Kevin gets just enough information to begin setting up his traps. And I guess it's worth asking, do you have favorite traps that they go through? Or are there any that go too far for you in terms of being able to laugh at the pain that's happening? Um, so I think 
some of my very favorites are early on when uh, when Marv is going down the basement stairs and they're covered in ice mm-hmm. and then he tries to open the door, but it's just unlocked. Um, and, but and also there's, there's the, the timing of the crowbar falling on his head, right? <laughs> yes. I don't know how they did that where it's like he slipped and the crowbar got stuck on the door and then it fell off onto him. And I like, I can't imagine that they intended for that to happen. Like, how could you possibly program that? Mm-hmm. But it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it is so good. And I'd have to watch it again to know, like, did they, is there a cut where really they just left it swinging enough for it to fall? And then they, through editing, they moved to a different cut to get the timing just right. Because it is like the perfect beat of comedic timing that he has fallen down. The, he, he was using the, the crowbar to try and lift himself up on the, uh, 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 through the, using the doorknob for yeah. for grip, and, and he slips again, and then the the crowbar swings back and forth a few times, and then falls, and you hear the Kung! and uh, Daniel Stern's I'm sure voiceover, uh, you know, work, <laughs> yeah. fully work later, of, oh! um, <laughs> and, and also or ADR work later, and and also when he um, decides he's not going to go up the basement stairs into the house, he's going to go back outside, and from inside the basement, you see him go out the door and then they have him slip again. (laughs) And that's so satisfying to have it return to the exact same uh, gag. So, I mean, the, those basement steps are very high on my list. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got to say burning the hand um, has always been maybe a little bit too much for me. Yeah. I'd say burning the hand. And then also the shot of the nail going into the foot. Those are two that, I uh, I really wince at. For some reason, the blowtorch on the head should be in that category, but I think it's just cartoony enough that yes, it, it does it doesn't hurt as much as the nail into the foot. And like think, he holds still long enough that you're like, okay, yeah, there there's actual safety here. It's not, and I think so much of what makes things feel okay for the audience to laugh at comes from Joe Pesci's and uh, Daniel Stern's reactions and the nail in the foot when it's just the close-up shot of the foot going onto the nail we don't have that reaction shot yet um, when he falls back down the stairs that part's funny but the nail into the foot it's always like I can't <laughs> um, and then I think this one strikes me as funny but it's it's maybe like right on the edge is when the spider is on <laughs> Harry's <laughs> chest Marv, Marv, what are you doing, Marv? And and when he comes down with the crowbar, like they make, they have there be a crack sound. And that's the thing that's like, oh, maybe that's too much. But it's also like that, like their interaction, because that's the time where they're actually talking to each other through this moment. Yeah. And and what I think, what again, what makes it okay is Joe Pesci getting up and doing his raka fraka, the the mumbly speech, you know. Yeah. And then he, he grabs the crowbar and he hits him back. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd say those are though those are going to be in my very top. Uh, the something about the second paint can is really satisfying when you see the paint can hit. Well, I'm sure it's the stunt double, and then the stunt double hits the first paint can on his way down to land <laughs> on on top of. Well, it looks like Joe Pesci landing on Daniel Stern again. I don't know what this stunt situation would have been at that moment uh but the timing of that somehow also is really uh, like i've always i remember since i was a little kid like catching his head hitting both paint can like getting hit by the first paint can and then hitting the second paint can i don't know uh, if i'd ever registered that goes down um something about that moment has always tickled me in a way that is probably sadistic right (laughs) to to say that i really enjoy seeing that that particular moment i mean i think that's that's kind of the entire third act though 
Yeah, uh, and that's what this whole film builds to is really this cartoon-esque finale of violence. And it's just violence. And, you know, every holiday season now because of the internet, like you see, uh, like doctors commenting on what the actual damage would have been done to human mm-hmm. bodies. Yeah, I've seen probably like five different versions yeah. of that. They, they don't, they'd both be dead. Is <laughs> really the, the main takeaway. Kevin McAllister killed these two burglars uh, in terms of the amount of trauma that their bodies would have endured uh, from, from the booby traps that were set up. Uh, and yet through the magic of filmmaking, it becomes okay, I think, to, to laugh at all those, you know, this. Because uh, again, like John Williams' score gives you just the right uh, comedic tones backing everything. Uh, the performances from the two burglars make you know that it's re- that they're really okay. Like you, you as an audience are being given permission uh, to, to, to laugh at these moments. And again, the uh, the editing and the and the, the the cinematography do you know they present it in just the right way. Uh, and like I said, I think there was a wave of films similar to Home Alone after this. And as you noted, there's been I don't know how many Home Alone sequels that went straight to video after Lost in New York. I think there's at least four total Home Alone movies, but really this one and and um, Lost in New York are the only ones that anyone like talks about and rewatches. At right. All. But I think that one, one thing that's revealing is how hard it is to get that tone just right. So I yeah. do like, like Christopher Columbus. I'm not a fan of all of his subsequent work, but I think he did capture lightning in a bottle on this one. Yeah. I, I think this is, it, it's really solid. You know, it's got the right amount of heart, the right amount of comedy, um, all of that. All right, I'm looking up the Home Alone franchise. So we have Home Alone, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, Home Alone 3, Home Alone 4, Taking Back the House, Home Alone, The Holiday Heist, and then uh, the untitled uh, sixth film is the announced uh, remake for Disney+, Plus, and no one's quite sure what that is going to be. Uh, you know, I, I have heard some people say that um, it feels like, and I've, I've probably seen like fan fiction drafts of stuff, like it feels like the right thing to do is finish the trilogy and have something like what did Kevin McAllister become as an adult? <laughs> you know, like how did that turn out and and what is going on? <laughs> so I'm looking at this next one. There's no one from the original film included in this cast. So I'm guessing it is just a straight up remake and not uh, set in the same universe as these 1990 Home Alone films. Um, let's see. It is... Um, Okay, it says the plot is said to center around a boy who faces off against a married couple after he steals some, something of theirs. Uh, Archie Ace, Rob Delaney, Ellie Kemper have been cast in the film, as well as Ali Mackey, Keenan Thompson, Chris Parnell, Aisling B, Pete Holmes, and Timothy Simons. So it's, it seems like they have a full cast, and it looks like they're actually planning on filming uh, beginning in February in, in Canada. So uh, I think we I, I would will guess see. with that, uh, if, if that filming does happen, we would have a new Home Alone film in 2021 on Disney+. Plus. That, that would be my guess. And I'm just so skeptical that you can, you know, recapture this. Well, the only time I actually became aware of this was when I was doing all the research about Home Alone, I came across like an interview that Chris Columbus gave yesterday saying he doesn't really think a remake is a good idea because uh, they were trying to do something new and they captured lightning in a bottle and he thinks there'd be more luck in trying something new and having it go right rather than trying to recapture something that had gone right in the past. Yeah, I I, I think in many I mean, cases that's going to be the, the right choice. 
this is coming from the man who did direct Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, th- there is that uh, part of it. But also after this movie uh, had made so much money on such a budget, there was no way a sequel wasn't happening. So, yeah, I, I'm not going to be grudge at all. Uh, you know, everyone coming back for a second round. Well, Andrew, do you have any final thoughts about Home Alone? I just enjoy it. And more and more, I enjoy the the heart of it more than the the comedy of it. Yeah, I think uh, if it didn't have that heart, it, I, there's a quote from uh, Ted Danson about playing Sam Malone in Cheers, which Cheers is a you know classic sitcom, which has all the sitcom tropes that you expect and everything. And uh, he said, uh, playing Sam Malone, the character wouldn't have meant a hill of beans if he had, didn't have the alcoholic backstory and he was trying to never touch alcohol again, even as he worked at a bar is that without that tragic backstory, he wouldn't have had anything as an actor to grab onto. Uh, but with that, he was able to make Sam alone and one of the you know most iconic characters in television history. And I think home alone without the heart would have been a funny film that kids loved, but it would not have become a holiday classic. And on that, we're going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at jdorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at this minute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you again for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Sorry, I, I, was, I didn't have the script up to read the I outro. I was going to say, are you getting the outro? Yes. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs>